Welcome back. We're going to continue with the next stave of our holiday classic from Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. We hope you're enjoying what you've heard so far and that you'll be back for the remaining parts. So without further ado, here we go. And we're going to give a quick recap in case you did miss that first stave slash chapter. Hello. This is Howard, and welcome to a special episode of our Off the Shelf podcast. On behalf of the board members and the staff of the Susquehanna County Historical Society and Free Library Association, we want to wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas. We have a five-part podcast starting today, with the next four parts being released each of the following four days. This is a very special reading of one of the best-known holiday stories written by Charles Dickens, titled A Christmas Carol in Prose Being a Ghost Story of Christmas. We know it better as just The Christmas Carol. Here's a little bit of history about the story pulled from one of my favorite websites, Wikipedia, and you can find out more about the book and Charles Dickens if you want to run to the Wikipedia site later on and check it out. But here's some things that I learned by that visit. The first edition of the book was published and released on the 19th of December, 1843, which by my math was 177 years ago from today. Mr. Dickens was having a little bit of financial issues and had spent six weeks writing this particular book. Now, he was an established author before this, but authors have their ups and downs. The first printing was for 6,000 copies, and he started on the 19th of December, 1843, as I said, and by Christmas Eve, six days later, all of those copies were sold out. It was a hit. By the end of the following year, 1844, there were another 13 editions were released. The story was not the first Christmas story that Charles Dickens wrote. He actually wrote three before this title and then four more after The Christmas Carol was released. The Christmas Carol, though, is definitely the most popular. Starting in 1849, Mr. Dickens started doing public readings of the books doing over 127 of those readings over 21 years until his death in 1870. The Christmas Carol is considered the favorite Charles Dickens book in the United States, selling over 2 million copies in the first 100 years of the publication. The book is divided into five staves or chapters we're going to have a different reader in each of those five episodes. Our readers are members of our local community that do have a connection to the library. You may recognize their voice as they start to read each chapter or stave, and at the end, I will let you know who they are and what their connection is to the library. I want to thank all five of them before we start. We are so very happy that they were willing to share with us 
And I think they all had a great time doing it. And if you know who they are, please let them know that you enjoyed these recordings. If you're not familiar with the book, you can check a copy of The Christmas Carol out at the library. Or even go online and look for a free PDF version of it that you could either read or download since it was released a long time ago and is out in the public domain. To help set the mood, each of our five episodes, each stave will also be introduced with a brief musical piece that was written between 1719 and 1843. These were the songs that the people in the times that the Christmas Carol story happened were singing in the streets to celebrate the season, and that Ebenezer Scrooge would give a bah humbug to as he walked by them in those streets. So sit back, relax with a cup of hot chocolate, and maybe a plate of those holiday cookies, and enjoy now stave number one, Marley's Ghost. Oh, and don't forget to share this with others. And if you subscribe to the podcast, you'll get these next four episodes and everything that comes out on the Off the Shelf podcast series sent to you. So, this is what's at the beginning of The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens as he introduces the book. And I quote, I have endeavored in this ghostly little book to rise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Their faithful friend and servant, C.D., December 1843. And that was Silent Night, written in 1818. And now, Stave 4, The Last of the Three Spirits.
The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for it was very air through which the spirit moved. It seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him and that its mysteriously presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke or moved. I am in the presence of a, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, said Scrooge. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me the shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us, Scrooge pursued. Is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds, as the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Although well used in ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow him. The spirit pauses a moment as observing his condition and giving him time to recover. But Scrooge was all the worse for this. It thrilled him with a vague, uncertain horror to know that behind the dusky shroud there were ghostly eyes intently fixed upon him, while him, though he stretched his own to the utmost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one great heap of black. Ghost of the future, he explained. I feel you more than any spectra I have seen, but as I know your purpose is to do me good, and I, as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear your company and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on, said Scrooge, lead on. The night is warning fast, and it is precious time to me. I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up. He thought and carried him along. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them and encompass them of its own act. But there they were, in the heart of it, on change, a, amongst the merchants who hurried up and down and clinked the money in their pockets and conversed in groups and looked at their watches and truffled thoughtfully with their great gold seals and so forth, as Scrooge had seen them often. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen, observing that the hand was pointed to them 
Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. No, said a great fat man with a monstrous chin. I don't know much about it. Either way, I don't know he's dead. When did he die, inquired another. Last night, I believe. Why, what was the matter with him, asked a third, taking a vast quantity of stuff out of a very large snuff box. I have thought he'd never die. God knows, said the first with a yawn. What has he done with his money, asked a red-faced gentleman with a pendulous extensus on his end of his nose that shook like the gills of a turkey cock. I haven't heard, said the man with a large chin, yawning again. Left it to his company, perhaps? He hasn't left it to me, that's all I know. This pleasantry was received with a general laugh. It's likely to be very cheap funeral, said the same speaker, for upon my life I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and, and volunteer? I don't mind going if I if a lunch is provided, observed the gentleman with the extensives on his nose, but I must be fed if I make one. Another laugh. Well, I am the most disinterested among you. After all, said the first speaker, for I never wear black gloves and I will never eat lunch, but I'll go offer to you if somebody else will. When I come to think of it, I'm not all at all sure that I wasn't his most particular friend, for we used to stop and speak whenever we met. Bye-bye. Speakers and listeners strolled away and mixed with other groups. Scrooge knew the men and looked towards the spirit for an explanation. The phantom glided on into a street. Its finger pointed to two persons meeting. Scrooge listened again, thinking they that the explanation might lie here. He knew these men, also perfectly. They were men of all business, very wealthy, and of great importance. He had made a point always of standing well in their esteem and in a business point of view, that is, strictly in a point, business point of view. How are you, said one. How are you, returned the other. Well, said the first. Old Scratch has got his own at last, hey? So I'm told, returned the second. Cold, isn't it? Seasonally for Christmas time. You're not a skater, I suppose. No, no. Something else to think of. Good morning. Not another word. That was their meeting, their conversation, and their parting. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised that the spirit should attach importance to conversations apparently so trivial, but feeling assured that they must have some hidden purpose, he set aside to consider what it was likely to be. They could scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of Jacob, his old partner, for that was past, and this ghost province was the future nor could he think of any one immediately connected with himself to whom he could apply them, but nothing doubting that to whomsoever they applied that had some latent moral for his own improvement, 
He resolved to treasure up every word he heard and everything he saw, and especially to observe the shadow of himself when, he, when it appeared. For he had an expectation that the conduct of the future self would give him the clue he missed and would render the solution of all these riddles easy. He looked about it that very place of his own imagine, but another man stood in his accustomed corner and thought the clock pointed to his usual time of day for being there. He saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured in through the porch. It gave him little surprise, however, for he had been revolving in his mind a change of life, and though and thought and hoped he saw his newborn resolutions carried out in this. Quiet and dark, beside him stood the phantom with its outstretched hand. When he roused himself from his thoughtful quest, he fanced from the turn of his hand and its situation in reference to himself that the unforeseen eyes were looking at him keenly and made him shudder and feel very cold. They left the business scene and went into the obscure part of the town where Scrooge had never penetrated before. Although he recognized its situation and its bad repute, the, the ways were foul and narrow. The shops and hours wretched, the people half-naked, drunken, slipshot, ugly, alleys and archways, like so many cesspools, disgorged their offenses of smell and dirt and life upon the straggling streets. And the whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth and misery. Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed, beetling shop below a house roof where iron, old rags, bottles, bones, and greasy offal were brought. Upon the floor within were piled up heaps of rusty keys, nails, chains, hinges, files, scales, weights, and refuse iron of all kinds. Secrets that few would like to scrutinize were bred and hidden in the mountains of unforeseenly rags, masses of corrupt fat, and scrupulous of bones. Sitting in among the wares he dealt in by a charcoal stove made of old bricks was a gray-haired rascal, nearly 70 years of age, who had seemed himself from the cold air without by a frowsy curtaining and miscellaneous, miscellaneous tatters, hung upon a line and smoked his pipe in all the luxury of calm retirement. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. But she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in a faded black who was all no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. After a short period of blank astonishment, 
in which the old man with the pipe had adjoined them, they all three burst into a laugh. Let the chairwoman alone be the first, cried, cried she who had entered first. Let the laundress along to the second, and let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. Look here, old Joe, here's a chance. If we haven't all three met here without meaning it. You couldn't have met in a better place, said old Joe, removing his pipe from his mouth. Come into the parlor. You were made free of it long ago, you know, and the author and the other two ain't strangers. Stop till I shut the door of the shop. Ah, how it shrieks. There ain't such a rusty bit of metal in the place as, it, as its own hinges. I believe and I'm sure there's no such old bones here as mine. Ha ha. We're all suitable to our calling. We're, we're well matched. Come into the parlor. Come into the parlor. The parlor was the space behind the screen of rags. The old man raked the fire together with an old star rod, and having trimmed his smoky lamp, for it was night, with the stem of his pipe, but in his mouth again. While he did this, the woman who had already spoken threw her bundle on the floor and sat down in a flaunting manner on a stool, crossing her elbows and her knees and looking with a bold defiance at the other two. What odds, then? What odds, Miss Dilber, said the woman. Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed, said the laundress. No man more so. Why, then, don't you stand staring as if you were afraid, woman? Who's the wiser? We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. No, indeed, said Miss Dibbler, and the man together. We should hope not. Very well, then, cried the woman. That's enough. Who is the worse for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed, said Miss Dilber, laughingly. If he wanted to keep them after he was dead, a wicked old screw pursued the woman, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him when he was struck with death, instead of lying gasping out this last here alone by himself. It's the trust word that ever was spoke, said Miss Dilber. It's a judgment of him. I wish it was a little heavier judgment, replied the woman, and it should have been, you may depend upon it, if I could have laid my hands on anything else. Open the bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Speak out plain. I'm not afraid to be the first, nor afraid for them to see it. We know pretty well that we were helping ourselves before we met here, I believe. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. But the gallantry of her friends would not allow of this. 
and the man in faded black, mounting the breach first, produced his plunder. It was not extensive. A seal or two, a pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons, and a brooch of no great value were all. There were several examined and appraised by old Joe, who chalked the sums he was disposed to give for each upon the wall and added them up into a total when he found there was nothing more to come. That's your account, said Joe, and I would give another sixpence if I was told if it was to be boiled for not doing it. Who's next? Miss Dilber was next. Sheets and towels, a little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a few boots. Her account was stated on the wall in the same manner. I always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine. <clears throat> That's the way I ruin myself, said old Joe. That's your account. If you ask me for another penny and made it an open question, I'd repent by being so liberal and knock off half a crown. And now undo my bundle, Joe, said the first woman. Joe went down on his knees for the greater convenience of opening it. And having unfastened a great many knots, dragged out a large and heavy roll of some dark stuff. What do you call this, said Joe? Bed curtains? Ah, returned the woman, laughing and leaning forward on her crossed arms, bed curtains. You don't mean to say you took them down rings and all with him lying there, said Joe. Yes, I do, I replied the woman. Why not? You were born to make your fortune, said Joe, and you certainly do it. I certainly shan't hold my hand when I can get anything in it by reaching it out. For the sake of such man as he was, I promised you, Joe, returning the woman coolly. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets, asked Joe. Whose else do you think, replied the woman. He isn't likely to take cold without them, I dare say. I hope he didn't die from anything catching, said old Joe stopping in his word and looking up. Don't you be afraid of that, returned the woman. I ain't so fond of this company, of his company, that I loyally about him and such things if he did. Ah, you may look through the shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it, nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had, and a fine one too. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting of it? asked old Joe. Putting it on him to be buried in, to be sure, replied the woman with a laugh. Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. If calico ain't good enough for such a purpose, it isn't good enough for anything. Quiet as becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that one. Scrooge listened in the dialogue in horror as they sat grouped about their spoil 
in the scanty light afforded by the old man's lamp, he viewed them with a de detestation and disgust, which could hardly have been greater, though the demons marketing the corpse itself. Ha ha, laughed the same woman when old Joe produced a flaming bag with money in it, told out their several gains upon the ground. This is the end of it, you see. He frightened everyone away from him when he was alive, to profit us when he was dead. Ha, ha, ha. Spirit, said Scrooge, shuddering from head to foot. I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? He recalled in terror from the scene had changed. Now he almost touched the bed, a bare, uncurtained bed on which beneath a ragged sheet there lay a something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. The room was very dark, too dark to be observed with any accuracy, though Scrooge glanced round it and in, be, in obedience to a secret impulse. Anxious to know what kind of room it was, a pale light rising in the outer air fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and beneath, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Scrooge glanced towards the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. He thought of it, felt how easy it would be to do, and longed to do it, but had no more power to withdraw the veil than to dismiss the spectra at his side. O oh, cold, cold, rigid, dreadful, death, set up thine altar here and dress it with such terrors as thou hast at thy command, for this is thy dominion. But of the loved, revered, and honored head, thou canst not turn one hair to thy dread purposes or make one featured odious. It is not that the hand is heavy and will fall down when released. It is not that the heart and the pulse are still, but, they had, but the hand was open, generous and true, the heart brave, warm and tender, and the pulse a man's. Strike, shadow, strike. And see this good deeds springing from the wound, to sow the world with life immortal. No voice pronounced these words in Scrooge's ears, yet he heard them when he looked upon the bed. He thought, if this man could be raised up now, what would he, what would be his foremost thoughts? Avarce, hard dealing, gripping cares, they have brought him to a rich end, truly. 
He lay in the dark, empty house with not a man, a woman, or a child to say that he was kind to me in this or in that. And for that, and for the memory of one kind word, I will be kind to him. A cat was tearing at the door, and there was a sound of gnawing rats beneath the hearth stove. What they wanted in the room of death and they, and why they were so restless and disturbed, Scrooge did not dare to think. Spirit, he said, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lessons. Trust me, let's go, let us go. Still the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I understand you, Scrooge returned, and I would do it if I could, but I have not the power. Spirit, I have not the power. Again, it seemed to look upon him. If there is any person in the town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, said Scrooge, quite anguished, show that person to me, Spirit, I beseech you. The phantom spread its dark robe before him for a moment, like a wing, and withdrawing it, revealed a room by daylight, where a mother and a child were. She was expecting someone, and with anxious eagerness, for she walked up and down the room, staring at every sound, looked out from the window, glanced at the clock, but in vain to work with the, her needle and could hardly bear the voices of the children in their play. At length, the long-expected knock was heard. She hurried to the door and met her husband, a man whose face was careworn and depressed, though he was young. There was a remarkable expression in it, a kind of serious delight of which he felt ashamed and which he struggled to repress. He sat down to the dinner that had been boarded for him by the fires. And when she asked him faintly what news, which was not until after a long silence, he appeared embarrassed how to answer. It is good, she said, or bad, to help him. Bad, he answered. We are quite ruined. No, there is hope yet, Caroline. If he relents, she said, amazed, there is. Nothing is past hope if such a miracle has happened. He is past relenting, said the husband. He is dead. She said a, she was a mild and patient creature, and her face spoke truth. But she was thankful in her soul to hear it, and she said so. With clasped hands... <clears throat> She prayed forgiveness the next moment and was sorry, but the first was the emotion of her heart. What the half-drunken woman whom I told you of last night said to me when I tried to see him and obtain a weekly's delay, and that I thought was a mere excuse to avoid me, turns out to be to have been quite true. 
he has not only very ill, but dying then. To whom will our debt be transferred? I don't know, but before that time we shall be ready with the money. And even though we were not, it would be a bad fortune indeed to find so merciless a creditor and his successor. We may sleep to the night with light hearts, Caroline. Yes, so often as they would, their hearts were lighter. The children's faces hushed and clustered round to hear what they so little understood were brighter, and it was a happier house for this man's death. The only emotion that the ghost could show him caused by the event was one of pleasure. Let me see some tenderness connected with a death, said Scrooge, or the dark chamber spirit, which he left just now will be forever present to me. The ghost conducted him through several streets, familiar to his feet. And as they went along, Scrooge looked here and there to find himself, but nowhere was he to be seen. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house, the dwelling he had visited before, and found the mother and children seating around the fire. Quiet, very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were as still as statues in one corner and sat looking up as, at Peter, who had a book before him. The mother and her daughters were engaged in sewing, but surely they were very quiet. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. Where had Scrooge heard those words? He had not dreamed them. The boy must have read them out as he had the spirit crossed the threshold. Why did he not go on? The mother laid her work upon the table and put her hand up to her face. The collar hurts my eyes, she said. The collar? Oh, poor tiny Tim. They're better known again, said Cratchit's wife, and makes them weak by candlelight. And I would show weak eyes to your father when he comes home for the world. It must be near his time. Past it, rather, Peter answered, shutting up his book. But I think he was walked a little slower than he used these few last evenings, mother. They were very quiet again. At last, she said in a steady, cheerful voice that only faltered once, I have known him walk with tiny Tim upon his shoulder very fast indeed. And so have I, cried Peter often. And so have I, explained another. So had all. But he was very light to carry. She resumed intent upon her work. And his father loved him so that it was no trouble, no trouble. And there is your father at the door. She hurried out to meet him, and little Bob and his comforter, he had need of it, poor fellow, came in. His tea was ready for him on the hob, and they were all tried who should help him to it the most. 
Then the two young Cratchits got upon his knees and laid each child a little cheek against his face as if they said, Don't mind it, Father. Don't be grieved. Bob was very cheerful with them and spoke pleasantly to all the family. He looked at, at the work upon the table and praised the industry and the speed of Mrs. Cratchit and the girls. They would be done long before Sunday, he said. Sunday, you went today, then, Robert, said the wife. Yes, my dear, returned Bob. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on a Sunday. My little, little child, cried Bob, my little child. He broke down all at once. He couldn't help it. If he couldn't have helped it, he and his child would have been farther apart, perhaps, than they were. He left the room and went upstairs into the room above, which was lighted cheerfully and hung with Christmas. There was a chair inside close beside the child, and there were signs of someone having been there lately. Poor Bob sat down in it, and when he had thought a little and composed himself, he kissed the little face. He was reconciled to what had happened and went down again quietly happy. They drew about the fire and talked. The girls and the mother still work. Bob told them of the extraordinary kindness of Mr. Scrooge's nephew, whom he had scarcely seen but once, and who, meeting him in the street that day and seeing that he looked a little, just a little down, you know, said Bob, inquired what had happened to distress him. On which, said Bob, for he is the pleasantest spoken gentleman you ever heard, I told him. I am heartily sorrow for it, Mr. Cratchit, he said, and heartily sorrow for your good wife, Bow the bind, how he ever knew that, I don't know. Knew what, my dear? Why, that you were a good wife, replied Bob. Everybody knows that, said Peter. Very well observed, my boy, cried Bob. I hope they do. Heartly sorrow, he said, for your good wife, if I can be of service to you in any way, he said, giving me his card. That's where I live. Pray come to me. Now it wasn't, cried Bob, for the sake of everything he might be able to do for us. So much as for his kind way, this was quite delightful. It really seemed as if he had known our tiny Tim and felt with us. I'm sure he's a good soul, said Mrs. Cratchit. You would be sure of it, my dear, returned Bob, if you saw him spoke and spoke to him. I shouldn't be all surprised. Mark what I say. If he got Peter a bed, better situation. Only hear that, Peter, 
said Mrs. Cratchit. And then, cried one of the girls, Peter will be keeping company with someone and setting up for himself. Get along with you, retorted Peter, grinning. It's just as likely or as not, said Bob. One of these days, through there's plenty of time for that, my dear. But however, and when we ever we part from one another, I am sure we shall none of us forget poor tiny Tim, shall we? Or his first parting that there was among us. Never, father, cried they all. And I know, said Bob, I know, my dears, and when we recollect how patient and how mild he was, although he was a little, a little child, we shall not quarrel easily, easily among ourselves and forget poor Tiny Tim in doing it. No, never, Father, they all cried. I am very happy, said little Bob. I am very happy. Mrs. Cratchit kissed him. His daughters kissed him. The young two Cratchits kissed him. And Peter himself shook hands. Spirit of Tiny Tim, thy childish essence was from God. Spectra, said Scrooge, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me what man that was whom we saw lying dead. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him as before, though at a different time. He thought, indeed, there seemed no order in these later visions, save that they were in the future, into the resorts of the businessmen, but showed him not himself. Indeed, the spirit did not stay for anything, but went straight on, as to the end just now desired, until besought by Scrooge to tarry for a moment. This courts, said Scrooge, through which we hurry now, is where my place of occupation is, and has been for a length of time. I see the house. Let me behold what I shall be in days to come. The spirit stopped. The hand was pointed elsewhere. The house is yonder, Scrooge explained. Why do you point away? The inexorable figure underwent no change. Scrooge hastened to the window of his office and looked in it. It was an office still, but not his. The furniture was not the same, and the figure in the chair was not himself. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again and wondered why and whether he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. A churchyard... Here, then, the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses, overrun by grass and weeds, the growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much bearing, fat with repleted appetite, a worth a worthy 
place. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. He advanced towards it trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw new meaning in its solemn shape. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they the shadows of the things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's curses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if preserved in, they must lead, said Scrooge. But if the courses he departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I the, that man who lay upon the bed, he cried, upon his knees? The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. No, spirit. Oh, no, no. The finger still was there. Spirit, he cried, tight clutching at his robe. Hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been but for this intercourse. Why show me this if I am past all hope? For the first time, the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit, he pursued, as drawn upon the ground, he fell before it. Your nature intercedes for me and pits me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows and have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honor Christmas in my art. I will try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and in the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. In his agony, he caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his in entry and detained it. The spirit, stronger yet, repulsed away. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate awe reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into the bedpost. Stay four, the last of the three spirits. Our reader for stay four was Alan Hall, a Susquehanna County commissioner. Thank you, Commissioner Hall, for volunteering to be a reader of this great book and for your support of the Library and the Historical Society as one of our three county commissioners. If you're not aware of it, Mr. Hall did a wonderful job last year 
on a reading of The Night Before Christmas, which we have re-released this year as a podcast. So if you haven't heard that yet, check that one out too. Thank you again, Alan, for a wonderful reading, and we look forward to hearing this in the years to come. I'm Howard, and I'll be back with you tomorrow for Stave 5, the final stave of Charles Dickens' beloved holiday classic, The Christmas Carol. Hi, this is Howard with the Susquehanna County Free Library. With just a reminder, this has been a tough year with COVID. As you probably know, if you do visit the local library, you know, we actually had the doors closed for a while and then we were open for curbside service and now we're fully open and most of our services are back up and running. But I just wanted to remind you of a great way of being able to support your library here. If you are an Amazon shopper, I hope that you're aware of Smile Amazon. And if you need more information, you can go to our website and you'll find a place to click on that to let you know a little bit more about it. So here's how Smile Amazon works. It's just like ordering the regular way from Amazon, but most purchases, the organization that you choose to support, and we are a nonprofit organization that is supported by Smile Amazon, one half of 1% is donated by Amazon each quarter to that organization. So what that means is that if you spend $100 on Amazon, they're going to take a half a percent, which is only 50 cents. It does not come out of your cost. It has no impact at all to what you're paying to Amazon, but it's Amazon's way of giving back to the local community. We don't know how many people are signed up to the service. We don't know how much you're buying from Amazon. Amazon keeps all of that private, but we do know that we get a check from Amazon quarterly and we have seen more and more increases coming forward in those donations. It's a great way to support us. We thank you, whoever you are, because again, we don't know. And we encourage you that if you shop Amazon and if you don't have a current organization that you're supporting, that you do investigate the Smile Amazon and that you list us as the organization you would like to support. And we thank you in advance for that support. So if you've got questions, come into any of the branches, give us a phone call or click on the link online. And again, thank you in advance for your support. Till next time, happy reading.